Hi, and welcome to The Escape Artist, a podcast for the culturally curious traveller. I'm Edwina Hart, I'm a travel journalist and photographer, and each week I'll be interviewing a special guest who has mastered the art of escape. We'll unpack how travel has influenced their lives and creative endeavours. This podcast is pure escapism for those always dreaming of their next destination. Hi, I'm Sophie Roberts, and I'm a traveller who loves to look for magic in the places you least expect to find it. It takes a special kind of person to hear the sentence, the lost pianos of Siberia, uttered in casual conversation, and have those words ignite an obsession that eventuates in a three-year odyssey across the vast, white wilderness of Siberia in search of a piano. That person is my guest, British travel journalist Sophie Roberts. Her self-described oddball quest is documented in her debut book, The Lost Pianos of Siberia, which has been met with critical acclaim. Sophie Roberts is one of the finest travel writers of our time, having carved out an exceptional career as an editor-at-large for titles such as Condonast Traveller and Departures Magazine, as well as a columnist for the Financial Times' How to Spend It. In recent years, she's felt a call to the wild, trading the glitzy hotels and glamorous getaways for a chance to tell untold stories from remote parts of the world, reporting on wildlife conservation, threats to ecosystems, and fragile cultures. In this episode, we'll learn how Sophie's unbridled imagination, fostered by a childhood love of books, transported her from a quiet life on the west coast of Scotland to far-off foreign lands. Join us as we hide away on a houseboat in Kashmir, roam the old cattle tracks of Andalusia on horseback, visit Sir Edmund Hillary's favourite house in the Himalayas, and take to the streets of Brazzaville, transformed into catwalks for the stylish Congolese sappers. Finally, we'll delve into the depths of Siberia, crisscrossing our way from the Ural Mountains to the lava-spewing ring of fire of Russia's Far East – all in search of an instrument that reveals the isolated and sparsely populated region's unexpected musical legacy along the way. Here's Sophie Roberts. Hi Sophie, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Edwina. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. It's fantastic to have you on the podcast. I've been a fan of your travel writing for quite some time. You lead what many might describe as a rootless and utterly romantic life, covering so many incredible far-flung destinations in your travel stories. So I'm eager to hear all about the places that have captured your heart and imagination over the years. And of course, I recently picked up a copy of your debut book, The Lost Pianos of Siberia, and wow, it's hauntingly beautiful, compelling, and a true love letter to Siberia. So I'm thrilled we'll have a chance to chat about that too. But before we begin, where in the world are you at the moment? So I'm talking to you from my home in West Dorset in England, which is... I guess it's a kind of traveller's home in many ways. I live down a very long track that's hard to find that most of my friends won't take their cars down. I live <laughs> on a little farm with a lot of animals and my kids. Um, we can walk to the beach. It's a pretty part of England, a hidden part of England. And I say it's a traveller's home, one, because it's full of junk that I pick up in markets around the world, <laughs> which is a big ha dangerous habit I have, but also because it's kind of got a sort of a lost feeling which is the 
thing I search for most when I'm on the road. I search for places that make me have that incredible sense of discovery. Of course, it's not a real discovery. I'm on a map, as is everything else, but it's the feeling of a discovery that you're making for yourself. And that's a kind of core, if you like, to the kind of travel I enjoy and like to write about. Oh, absolutely. And I'm just trying to picture your place now. Is there a souvenir that you've picked up that you really treasure? Uh, there's so many. I've got some really fantastic things I picked up from the Sepik River in Papua New Guinea, which I adore. I've got lots of amulets. I'm wearing one round my neck, which I picked up from Nepal. I spend a lot of time in Nepal. It's a kind of some holy beads that promise me eternal life. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's a pretty, is, pretty good promise. Pretty good thing. Uh, it's a kind of it's a kind of a junk shop. Everything is under 20 bucks. That's my rule. But there's never a rule on size or weight. So I've only once been penalized for size or weight. And that was with an enormous haul out of Bangkok and Myanmar. (laughs) (laughs) But otherwise, it's just got to be cheap and colourful and full of memory, full of memory. I'm guessing just based on your travels, you probably don't spend that much time at home. So when you are, you're constantly reminded of your travels. You're certainly in the business of inspiring people to explore the world. But the question I always ask my guests, is there a book, a film, a song or piece of art that has inspired you to travel somewhere? So many The other thing I should describe is the room I sit in. It's wall-to-wall books, and they've been gathered over 20 years of being an avid reader. I am ashamed to say I don't watch much film. It's just a kind of a path I took. If I have a choice in the evenings, I read. I don't watch film. So it's books. And at the moment, so many, to every place I carry books with me. I carry real, real books, not just digital ones there's something about the heft and texture and smell and memory Mm. I scribble notes in them I value the seed pods that might fall in between the pages when I'm on the road you know there's a sort of relationship between a book you travel with to a place and bring back and it holds something in it doesn't it and golly the moment I'm working on an idea around restlessness and I was interested by the word you used at the beginning of this interview you said rootless Mm -hmm. and in many ways that's part of the same thing just with a slightly different vowel change Mm. but I'm the restlessness of the 1930s really inspires me in some of the travel writing there and books like Robert Byron's Road to Oxiana is a good example there's um, some fantastic pieces of literature that came out that very disturbed period Laurie Lee when I walked out one midsummer morning from these English country lanes, much like the ones I've known over the last few months in the summer, which are sort of frothy with cow parsley, you know, they're, they're completely rich with bird life. They are one of the most beautiful parts of England, these lanes of the West Country, mm. just totally thick with flowers that you could never, ever, ever buy in a bouquet in Sydney or London. They belong to the hedgerows. And that book is about... Englishman who walks from his home in a place like mine to Spain, Andalusia, where he gets involved in the Spanish Civil War. So a period of profound restlessness, Mm. but from a background of bucolic bliss. I'm interested by that. That's a book that's inspiring me at the moment. Oh, I'll have to add that to the reading list. It has inspired me to travel. It it came out sometimes you go somewhere and it inspires you to read something. It goes the other way around. And that book came 
out of some time I had in Andalusia not so long ago where I went riding with an Englishman who's based there, although he's far more Spanish than English, if truth be told. He is opening up the old cattle paths of Andalusia, these ancient old byways that are open to the cattle herders and the horsemen. And we rode for four or five days through this kind of forgotten country of southern Spain. And it was remarkable. It was a lesson to me because I tend to be drawn towards the far flung. Mm -hmm. And it was a lesson to me that sometimes what lies very close, because of course Andalusia to me is a very short distance from here in the UK, is sometimes what lies close is just as compelling and hidden and forgotten. That's really true. And it's something that we're all grappling with more recently in terms of the climate crisis and how we can explore more of our own backyard so you don't have to hop on an aeroplane to some distant location for a holiday. And it's interesting that you brought up the inverse of a book-inspiring travel, but a destination-inspiring one to read a book. And I certainly had that experience in Patagonia. I fell in love with the lyrical Patagonian landscape, and I found a copy of Bruce Chatwin's In Patagonia to read on my flight home from Chile. And it felt even more enriching reading his descriptions, having just experienced them firsthand. Mm, it's really important. And, you know, the gentleman that I was with in Andalusia, you know, we're on these old cattle trails. We're moving really slowly. He says to me, you know, the rides are like reading a book. The slowness, the scenery, the element of surprise, not knowing what's coming next. You can't fast forward or rewind or flick through the chapter of each day. You just have to take it at that slow turn. Mm. And it's a really human pace. And at the moment, we are really suffering from living in a, the pace of technology, which is faster than our human emotions and senses can cope with. And that's why I like reading. And it's why I am being increasingly drawn towards this slower kind of travel to travel like I'm reading a book, slow it down so that you can have that conversation with people who can inspire you with their creative um, sources, if you like. And also you have time to respond to landscape as you did with your reading of Chatwin, another person who I love, by the way. Oh, Bruce Chatwin's so good. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. We've been ping-ponging around the world, but actually allowing time to let the place reveal itself to you, to let the stories unfold, and to get to know the local characters along the way, I think that that's something we'll all be looking to do more in the future. But let's actually rewind a little bit. Um, you grew up in quite a creative household. Your father was once a journalist and your mother is a painter. Do you think that that impacted the way that you viewed the world? Yeah, I think it did. My parents didn't have a whole lot of money, so we didn't travel. That was not a, a privilege that we were given as kids. But we were given the privilege of space and time, which is much of the things I seek when I'm on the road. And by that, I mean, I was brought up in Scotland. My father had been a journalist, but then went into fish farming. He was a fish farmer. And it was a really rural childhood. I had my sisters for company. We didn't have a TV for quite a long time. And my father's a big reader and my mother painted. And we were always brought up as if it was entirely normal to be utterly responsible for earning your living through a creative act and being entirely responsible for your own next day's work as opposed to being salaried. Mm. That was just the way they were, for good or bad. But at the end of the day, I think it was a, I think it was space and time. You know, we weren't scheduled. I never remember being driven to a swimming class or a ballet lesson. Sophie, as you're talking about this, I'm trying to conjure up an image of where you lived in Scotland. Can you describe it for us? 
Yeah, I mean, initially they were up on the West Coast, um, you know, kind of wild country up in Argyle. But then latterly they ended up at a place called Dumfries and Galloway. I remember we were close to the sea and we used to, I was brought up with horses and we used to ride on the Solway Firth, which is a famous bit of sea because the tide can come in faster than a galloping horse. And we were always, we used to ride out with some of the race trainers, racing horses that used to get trained up on the sands there. And I always hoped that my kind of slightly fat, you know, dirty grey pony was going to be faster than theirs. <laughs> but it was, yeah, I mean, you know, it was a sense of I would go out with my sisters and come back when we wanted to. It wasn't a lot of questions asked. We'd swim in the river. It was a pretty free free way to be and only you know my sister ran off to Paris my younger sister ran off to Glasgow and I had a period in London you know we all wanted our city fix and I still need a city fix but we've all returned to the countryside in some way and need it so I think it did instill something in us about landscape and slowness and community Mm. for sure. And these days you're such a passionate and deeply curious traveller when did that love of travel truly begin for you? I mean, it was always in my head. You know, as a child, I was reading books about the faraway tree, always. <laughs> um, Are you talking about Enid Blyton's faraway tree? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that was my favourite book as a child. It's so amazing. It's so good, yeah. It's so good. I gave it to my son the other day. But no one my age was reading it. It was Enid Bladden was very out of fashion when I was young. And I just love all those books are so... They certainly take you to these faraway places. I'm sure a lot of people became travel writers after nurturing their love of the the sort of imaginative world with Enid Bladden books. And all the... um, all the the adventures. The Secret Seven and the Famous Five and... What all those children got up to were so directly inspiring for me in my childhood too. That's so funny. Yeah, me too, me too. You know, always I kind of longed to see what was on the other side of the horizon. I I had a globe beside my bed. I remember it was a present for a birthday and it lit up. You know, it was like a bedside lamp and a globe. And I was obsessed by all the kind of empty spaces on that that I'd never heard of. Oh, that's amazing. I'm imagining you as a little girl looking at the world beyond your doorstep. Was there a particular country or even shape on the globe that... That really intrigued you. Ghana, weirdly, because okay. my father had been a teacher there. So Ghana totally fascinated me because of the stories he would tell. Mm. And then, which we'll get onto, I'm sure, later in the conversation, but Russia, you know, half the globe was covered by yes. a place called Russia. And that totally excited me. And at the time, of course, it wasn't a place that was open doors. So I've always liked The Forbidden as well. You know, the, there's another book for you, The Secret Garden, Francis Hodgson Burnett, you know? Yes, another one of my my childhood favourites. I think we have a very similar childhood reading list. (laughs) (laughs) But Forbidden Places are... I've, I've always been attractive to me, not because they're not because they're dangerous, but because where there's something forbidden, there's you know there's a reason for it that is kind of you want to get to this sort of you know the apple in the tree or whatever it might be. Oh, so absolutely, that again is something that I'm attracted to. Did you read any Agatha Christie when you were young as well? I didn't. I didn't. I must because my older son 
is reading Agatha Christie. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that she would teach me a thing or two about narrative suspense, (laughs) um, which is the hardest thing to pull off. Um, But no, I I haven't. I I, I will write it down. You you must. I mean, I haven't reread the books, but I just devoured them as a child. And it's interesting because all of, when I look back and see why I liked them so much, a lot of the stories are set in these incredible far-flung locations. Of course. And her own personal story is that she was married to an archaeologist. And so she was getting the train all the way to Iran and and, um, going on these incredible journeys for a woman of her time as well. So, yeah, definitely worth adding to the reading list. You're going to hear the scratch of a pen down the microphone because I'm going to make a note of that. (laughs) (laughs) I think that both of us have been writing down books to borrow from the library during this conversation. But it's clear with you that a wild imagination fostered your life of travel But where was the first significant trip that you actually took out in the big wide world? The the significant trip was when I was about 18 and I saved up £3,000 and I took myself off to India for Uh, seven months. Off for seven uh, months? Yeah, it was amazing. And, um, And that was the moment where it all kind of clicked in. I know it might seem like a cliche, but I really feel like it's always a journey or a passage to India, if you will, that really sets one up for a lifelong appreciation of travel. I think there's just something about India that's so intoxicating. What would you say was a highlight for you on that trip? It was probably, I mean, I had so many, but it was probably, look, I think Varanasi did something for me because it was the Ganges. It's, you know, the Varanasi is the town where they cremate their dead. It's a really holy town and a very, very holy river. And where you see love and death in such close proximity, you know, it kind of um, grabs at something in your core. Or it did with me. Mm. Everything is happening around you in this kind of extreme um, version of humanity. And so that experience was huge, watching the burning ghats and the, trying to understand how close, if you like, we live to death, and even though we forget it while we're enjoying life. The other place that I was really drawn to and have returned to again and again was Ladakh. And Ladakh is in the far north of the Himalayas. It's pretty high. It's Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist. And now it's really quite well-travelled, but still, still very, very special. And I loved it up there. And I went back two years later to Kashmir again, when Kashmir was pretty rocky. It mm. was going through all its troubles with Pakistan. And I went with my then boyfriend, who became my husband, and we spent about six weeks on a houseboat in Dal Lake with curfews at night. I remember it vividly at six o'clock, you weren't allowed to leave the boat because you would hear sniper fire. Oh, right. And I was imagining something really romantic. It kind of was. You know, it was sort of fear fighting rather than real. There wasn't kind of any real death going on when we were there. But it was a um, it was something that has stayed with me because you realize, you know, Dal Lake in Kashmir is like one of the great jewels of the Himalayas. It's literally an icon of literature, of Mughal art, of history. And when we were there, there was maybe three other foreign visitors. It was a really, really bad time for Kashmir. And all the houseboats were sinking into the lily leaves, which were choking the lake. It was a really sad thing to see. But there was beauty in there. There was 
beauty that I was glad I witnessed, even though it was a time of trouble. But I think that left an indelible mark that just because something is not the the fairy tale version, you know, I'm, I am a romantic character, but I'm not pure romance. I know that it's always shot through with a darkness and a difficulty. And that experience of Kashmir, where I was, you know, I was with a man I loved, it was, it was, there was something very precious about it, but it was also something moving and thoughtful about it. And on top of that, you can definitely tell in your portfolio of writing that you're really drawn to very remote, wild, and sometimes quite isolated places at times too. And there's a real sense of being alone in a vast space. Yeah, that matters to me um, a lot. Um, Not because I'm just a loner, although I sort of tend towards that, but also because it sort of circles back to something we were talking about earlier in our conversation, which is the commerce of travel has got in the way of the empathy that sits at the heart of travel, by which I mean we've been moving so quickly and consuming so fast because of an incredibly powerful travel industry. Our itineraries that we get presented and which we buy are, you know, one night, one night, one night Mm. through three countries in Africa in 10 days because our time is so short. And in a way, I did a lot of that. I made my living when I first started out on my career doing exactly that kind of journalism. I had to. It was it was where I could make a living, you know. How did you start out in travel journalism? Did you always know that you were destined to be a travel writer? No, I wanted actually to do conflict journalism, but I also knew I wanted to have a family. And, and I guess something tipped on that balance early on and also I was given an opportunity and you've got to grab them when they come I studied in the states I'd done a journalism degree at Columbia University in New York and I was coming back to England to a a job offer at Condé Nast Traveller which was just launching the British edition out of London and you know it was the lowliest role in the magazine but I needed a job and it sounded like a real opportunity and it was but it was more the travel side of the thing that had attracted me to the conflict journalism but it was the glossy side there's no conflict in Condé Nast Traveller (laughs) but it started me off on a journey and it started me off on one that I'm incredibly grateful for but it did as time progressed I found myself caught up increasingly in the business of tourism and less in the act of empathetic travel and that's what I've come I'm now 46 and that's where I'm at now I kind of want to slow it down I want to understand it more I want to interpret it more clearly I want to write about it more truthfully all of those things Mm. so it's a part of an arc Mm, you can really see that in your body of work now where in the world sparks your imagination like is there a destination that you Mm. are especially drawn to for your stories Oh, there's so many. I mean, I think that Africa is a place I've been drawn to. I first went about 10 years ago, so I was quite late in the game, really. And it stayed with me. I really, I find fenceless landscapes very, very inspiring because they are a reminder in a way of what we've lost through just huge explosions in human population. Mm. And that fencelessness, you see it in Africa time and time again there's the obvious places 
which is where I started in Tanzania and that East African belt. But over time, I've kind of worked myself westwards through the Congo region, where the fencelessness is in just forest on a scale that you just can't, you know, I'm, I'm saying this to an Australian who understands scale, but mm. to a Brit from a tiny island, yeah. it's on a, it's just nuts how big that area is. And while there's ecological tragedy knocking on the door, it is also still absolutely vast and much of it pristine. And then moving west from Congo, from the DRC over into Republic of Congo, and then up into, I've recently been working in West Africa and Senegal, Dakar, the music, the color, the fashion, the verve, the confidence, the identity, it's just electrifying. And I find that creatively, I can't believe it took me so long to get there. I really can't. It's just exciting as, as you as you can imagine. Well, I think we can all agree that you've certainly made up for lost time. (laughs) And those vastly different countries that you listed, the Congo really struck me as fascinating because it comes with a lot of preconceived notions and carries a reputation really aligned with the heart of darkness. I'd love to hear your impressions of that part of Africa. Well, first of all, I should be clear, there's two Congos. There's the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where I've worked a couple of times, and then there's the Republic of the Congo, and they're very different, very different sizes. Um, The DRC is huge and has an incredibly troubled history with a lot of violence. So, you know, everything that I loved there is underpinned with some really, really deep human suffering. Moving into the Republic of the Congo, where it was capital Brazzaville, I mean, even that name is just like, I love the name. Oh, yes, absolutely. There are just some places that really conjure something up in your imagination, like Brazzaville, Timbuktu, Kathmandu, Bermuda. They almost sound mythical. So. What was uh, what was Brazzaville like? Well, Brazzaville really excited me. I ended up spending much more time there than I'd planned. I found myself at one point on the Congo River, which flows past in a kind of dugout canoe on a plastic chair, trying to go further upstream to just find more of this place because it's just so, I can't, uh, it's, you know, again, it's got a troubled history, but Out of that troubled history, you see there's a kind of an optimism. And I found that evidenced in the Sapa culture, which are are these amazing folk who they wear very, I mean, this will be familiar, I'm sure, to your listeners. But, you know, they wear incredible, colorful suits. They're the best dressed people on the planet with sort of shiny 1940s brogues and fedoras and women as well in bright colours. Some of it, you know, real true vintage French fashion picked up when the Congolese were working, well, fighting the war for the French, the former French tectorate, I think it was. And then also suits made in the style of that time. So out of the kind of Congo Brazzaville dust, these rainbows of sapeur fashion come bouncing out. And I ended up spending a couple of days with these guys trying to understand what the culture was was trying to understand some of their individual stories so okay maybe you can explain for myself and the listeners where did the culture come from like what's the origin story of this creative sartorial form of expression it's a mix it's a mix and it's slightly different in the drc to the congo because of different musicians being involved at different moments in time who popularized it But effectively, you have got an African colony or protectorate 
and the colonizers leave the white folk and a lot of the clothes were left behind and worn better by the old house staff. Mm. They also, as I say, fought the war in France, the Second World War, picked up things there and they just started to make the whole look their own. And sapperism kind of grew out of that. And it is a sort of society for elegant people. It's a kind of club. And there are certain codes of behavior. And like I say, it slightly varies in Kinshasa. I think it's a bit different from Brazzaville and Kinshasa being in the DRC. But there's a whole code of etiquette and behavior that's very mannered. So the way they greet you is with a kind of almost like a sort of Fred Astaire kick. Wow. and a bow and the way they treat you is just elegance the only word um but it's a i don't know if it's written down but it might as well be and you have to have a certain amount there's sort of rules about how many colors you can wear with how many patterns and you know the correct way to wear a handkerchief and the number of accessories you're allowed whether it's an umbrella or a stick so there's a whole set of rules how amazing i mean from the images i've seen it seems like a riot of color and it's almost as if the streets have turned into a catwalk the heightened performativity of the sartorial style and the creativity they are exuding is quite quite remarkable yeah it's really proud I mean it's really really proud and it's um it's kind of like uh, one of them said to me you know the thing you don't understand is that we wear these clothes better than you ever did and I love that it's true and it's full of optimism it's pacifists there's a big sort of pacifist culture involved in it you know they don't want to fight wars with guns I wasn't really there to write about it I was there to write about a story of around a conservationist who had been rehabilitating some lowland mountain gorillas um, after an Ebola outbreak up in the far north of the country. But I just got completely sidetracked. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can completely imagine why. Who wouldn't get carried away? It seems like such an incredible subculture to find yourself immersed in. How wonderful. And you know what it was, is it was, and to go back to your thing about the Conrad reference in Heart of Darkness, it was kind of why I loved it. It was like a totally, totally the opposite of that narrative. And that's a theme that comes across in a lot of your writing, shining a light on places that are unexpected and unsung. And you also seem a bit like a moth to a flame when it comes to destinations with some astonishingly ethereal landscapes on your travels. Where do you think is the most surreal place that you've been? Um, I think, so recently I spent some time in Tajikistan and it was Tajikistan in winter. Tajikistan is on the Amudaya, the Oxus River, it's Central Asia. And I was down in the Pamir Mountains, which is right on the border with Afghanistan. And I found that a very, very ethereal landscape. Ethereal because it's otherworldly. It feels kind of, you know, kissed by the clouds, by some kind of godlight. The trees are willows and they look like sort of Chinese brushstrokes in a kind of winter mist. It's an incredible place. I was there to look into some snow leopard conservation work that was going on. It's a troubled place. The Soviet-Afghan war did its damage in the 80s um, and led to a huge poaching problem. But it's it's got an ethereal beauty to it that, you know, these kind of old Silk Road madrasas, like sort of mini pantheons that have these beautiful domed ceilings where you have just thousands of swallows and no tourists a whole hilltop city which in any other country would have the footfall of Machu Picchu it's just that's ethereal a Chad 
I was working in the end of 2019 in Chad, in the Enedi Desert, which is a really important part of the Sahara. It's up in the northeast of the country. And the Enedi Desert used to be green. It used to have water. And the evidence of that is in rock art of four or 5,000 years old, where there's an image of a rhino. Oh, wow. You know, the, the guy I was with there, we talked about how it used to be the Caspian of the Sahara. You know, it was a sea, it was an inland sea. And it's just got these huge rock arches that could compete with anything in America. It's got vast, vast, vast dunes. And it's very, very, very beautiful. And when you come across a rhino painting that's 5,000 years old <laughs> on a piece of rock that very, very few people have seen, imagine what else is out there. Imagine what, how much is there still to be discovered. So while Chad is one of the places that hit Donald Trump's no-go list, to me, yes, it's got some really troubled politics, it's got some troubled history, it's got some troubled human rights and all the rest of it. But it also is a place that fills me with some kind of optimism that not everywhere and everything on this planet has been decimated, understood or fully experienced by our species. And that's what, in the end, it makes me a traveller, I think. And I love the way that you find the nuances in places that might otherwise have bad headlines. You communicate those stories we're not hearing, and that's something that I really admire in your work. Now, you've explored so many overlooked corners of the globe. Can you share with us a secret little place that you know, somewhere that's really special to you? Well, let me think. OK, yes, I will. There's a place, there's two places that matter to me and my family for many, many reasons, not least familiarity. Mm -hmm. One is the Eastern Himalayas and a place called the Happy House, which is an extraordinary building that was created by an Italian climber with the Sherpa family. It then became a very familiar place to Sir Edmund Hillary when he was climbing Everest, and he christened it the Happy House. Oh, wow. And it sits in a valley in the Solukumbu in the Eastern Himalayas, very close to an incredibly important monastery called Chiwong. And you eat by candlelight, you play games in front of a fire, all the walls are painted by hand by a, a Buddhist thanker master. So it's all in those beautiful madder reds and those slightly kind of dirty greens and the sort of midnight blues and everything's flickering. All these kind of faces and gods are flickering out of the candlelight. And that's your home. And... We spend a lot of time there trekking. We spend a lot of time there for the Buddhist festivals when they occur and in all seasons. It's a really, really special place to us. And it's owned by a great friend, a Sherpa family, who now are taking paying guests. It wasn't the case when we started going, but they now are, which is wonderful because what they do for the community there is also really, really important. So it's amazing. Actually, you've just reminded me, I remember seeing a photo of yours and it's such an evocative image of this otherworldly forest that's cloaked in fog and it's, is that near the happy house? It's, it's sort of like a fairyland bursting with flowers and these mythical looking creatures. It is, it is very near. Yeah, no, that was when I took my young children and we went with this friend Ang Lama, who owns the house, and we went trekking up into the mountains behind for about three or four days. And you get these high mountain mists. It was in the early spring, just when the rhododendrons were kind mm. of bursting. And they felt like sort of spots of blood in the mist. It was absolutely extraordinary. And then you have yaks that look like 
kind of creatures out of let's go back to another childhood story that made me want to travel dr doolittle you know the push me pull you (laughs) they look like those kind of crazy animals from a doolittle tale and it's just it's a really special place has it got gold taps no is it fancy food absolutely not but is it real authentic and utterly unrepeatable yes Okay, that's it. The happy house has gone straight to the top of my must-visit list. And I'm sorry I interrupted you before. What was the other place that you were going to mention as special to you? Well, the other place, which is sort of like an echo of the same for us, is Mongolia. And we've spent a lot of time in an area called the Orkon Valley with a family who are close friends and they have a place about eight hours outside Ulaanbaatar, the capital, and it's a very special valley. He's German and she is Mongolian mm-hmm. and they've brought their kids up there and my kids have been going they've done it quite a few times now and we love it. You know, I, I get up in the morning and I can't find my youngest and he's just ridden off somewhere with a bunch of herder kids. Um, <laughs> so amazing. it's kind of real freedom. There's a beautiful sort of silver river that snakes below the camp. We all sleep in like Mongolian gear those tents and yeah as you know because I think you've been reading my book The Lost Pianos of Siberia begins in Mongolia because of that family and an experience in that very place so that's a pretty sacred landscape to me. Sophie that leads us so perfectly into talking about your debut book The Lost Pianos of Siberia. I'm sure the listeners would be eager to hear the story behind the genesis of your book, which I believe the idea behind it came from a visit to Mongolia. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so at that very place I was just describing, one summer in 2015, there was a young Mongolian pianist who was staying with the same family and she was teaching some of the children piano and doing some performances in the evening. And they had a Yamaha piano, a baby grand piano that they brought in for that purpose for the summer months when they're all there. But the Yamaha had been kind of pretty hammered by the Mongolian climate, which is tough. It's a really, really hot summers. It's a steppe climate. And the winters, it's so cold that, you know, the apocryphal story is the, the cow's tails snap in two. So it's not great for a piano. And one evening she was playing, and there was probably about 20 of us seated in this Mongolian tent. There was a fire in the middle burning. The stars were above us. The smoke is circling up from this beautiful, in this beautiful scene. Everything's by candlelight and she's playing she's playing something just beyond I mean it's so moving and my German friend leant over to me he knows a lot about music and he was kind of tut-tutting and he said oh it's not good enough that piano is not good enough for her and then he ended up saying to me he said you need to find her one of the and he used this phrase the lost pianos of Siberia and he knew who he was saying it to he (laughs) knew that those words would stick he's a filmmaker in his time and it set something off I was like what are you talking about what do you mean lost pianos of Siberia And what he was getting at, and I started to dig into, and what became an obsession over the next three, four years, was an extraordinary phenomenon in Russia when the piano, the instrument of European culture, was a mania in in Russia. They were obsessed by it in Moscow and St. Petersburg. You know, people like Franz Liszt came to play. They'd be grabbing at his hair and the cherry pips he spat out to wear, wear around their necks. You know, it was like... like the original like, rock star. He was the original rock star and the Russians that. couldn't get enough of it. And so pianos started to be made. They started to be imported. And at the same time, they also started to venture across from Western Russia, where Moscow, Petersburg, across the Ural Mountains, which is an effective boundary for Siberia 
Siberia into this vast expanse of tenths of the world's land surface, which is the Siberia I explore in my book, all the way to Kamchatka. And they would take pianos, these mavericks, misfits, governors, governors' wives, against all odds. You know, there's not even, there's no railway at this time. Mm. They were putting them on the backs of sledges across frozen lakes, all because of the need for music, or because of the solace that music gave, and the culture that it represented. And as soon as I understood some part of that history I undertook a fairly admittedly eccentric search (laughs) for pianos across the Siberian snows and yeah so that's what the book is it is a slightly curious mix of history music journalism and and I hope above all it's a story that speaks to what we have in common rather than what divides us which is a massive and likable humanity not just cruelty I loved that self-described oddball quest that you went on. What do you think was the most unusual place that you found a piano? Oh, they all felt a bit unusual. <laughs> I guess that goes with the territory of what you were doing. I mean, I suppose when I was in Kamchatka, Kamchatka is a really interesting area. I think it's in the same time zone as Auckland. So we are really far east. It's the peninsula that sticks out like a finger off the edge of Russia into the Pacific. It's got 500 volcanoes. There's no road that links it to the rest of Russia. I mean, it's really remote and beautiful, absolutely beautiful. I mean, wild nature on a scale that's hard to contemplate. And again, you know, the capital of Kamchatka has volcanoes right behind it. It's a very, very dramatic place. And to find a piano brought there in the 30s, the time the gentleman, the musician who brought it said it was like taking a piano to the moon. It still feels like that. It's kind of extraordinary. Taking a piano to the moon. (laughs) I adore that description. I can just picture the lunar landscape and a piano just sitting in the middle of that. Yeah. Yeah. A a grand piano, a beautiful Ibach. That was kind of unusual. In your book, you really capture the extraordinary relationship that Russians have with pianos, and it's just fascinating. And it's the same with opera and ballet culture. It's not just for the elite. Everybody has such an appreciation of art and music and culture. This is true. I mean, you know, it's one of the great things that came out of uh, out of a radical political shift is the democratization of culture it was the piano was of course in the 19th century an instrument for the rich and the Mm. bourgeois but in the 20th century it became an instrument for everyone what I was encountering was a very high level of musical education in in remote places, which you wouldn't get in my country, despite all my assumed, and I, I speak honestly, cultural superiority that mm-hmm. you have. Uh, one does. That whole arrogance was just like knocked sideways by the, like I say, the level of musical culture that exists all over Russia. I'd say it's more present in Russia than in my own country. You know, I went to see a ballet performance at one of St. Petersburg's famous theatres and it really struck me, like when I've seen a ballet at the Sydney Opera House or at the Royal Opera House in London, it's a real occasion to get dressed up in your finery and the audience was almost a little toffee-nosed. But in St. Petersburg, even though you're in these ornate jewel box theatres, to see a performance, it's almost casual and everyone or anyone is appreciating the ballet. Yeah. And you get that even more in Siberia, you know, and and what, you know, Siberia also has the largest opera house in Russia. You've just named some really big iconic ones. But Novosibirsk, that has the largest opera house in Russia. 
And you find these kind of concert halls, philharmonics, all across that spectrum of cities that maybe aren't familiar to us. When one imagines Siberia, it's an extreme hostile environment, a land that's tantamount to endless tundras and brutal gulags. However, the cultural side of Siberia and the human face of it is portrayed beautifully in your book. How does Siberia differ from the preconceived notions that you had or what was the Siberia that you came to know? It doesn't differ. There are huge tundras. There is an incredibly dark history, which I absolutely have to confront in, mm-hmm. in the pages of the book and in, the, in my travels. So that is all there. It's a very, very difficult place. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I took away from it without ever, ever forgetting the horror and the human atrocity and everything else was Siberians have a different approach to time. So when I went knocking on a door, I was a complete stranger. I was a British writer in Siberia knocking on a door saying, have you got a piano? Mm. The door would open. One, it was a slightly curious request. Two, it was a, a request that didn't have any politics attached, which is a good thing. And three, they opened up their door like I would never do here for days and would talk. So their approach to time is really, really different. And I valued that and came away appreciating and wanting to change the way that I live a little to make time like they did. So to find all the pianos, you've reached out to the Russian media, you're knocking on doors, you're zigzagging all across this incredibly expansive landmass of Siberia in the snow for months at a time. You know, for most of us, traveling around Siberia is synonymous with taking the Trans-Siberian, rattling along the tracks, traversing the inhospitable landscape. Is that how you got around or did you find some more inventive ways to explore the region? I did a lot of that. I was on Mm -hmm. that train a lot of the time. You know, they're modern trains and they're really good. I also, golly, I was an opportunist. I hitched rides with oil and gas workers in Hantimansisk. I hung out with reindeer herders and we traversed the landscape in snowmobiles and sledges. We used hovercrafts on Lake Baikal. There was one journey I took, which was a long journey, a long journey with uh, something called Blah Blah Cars, which is a bit like Uber. (laughs) (laughs) That that was down into the Altai. You know, you're an opportunist. You rely on the generosity of strangers. I'm not a Russian speaker. So I had a brilliant Russian interpreter who just kind of navigated that just beautifully trams I loved it I love I loved all the kind of the sort of options if you like Um, helicopters that are used to transport kids from boarding schools back to their remote areas gosh however I mean it's interesting because I do have a tangential tendency but it's also (laughs) the um, it's also something that I really savor in the kind of travel I love which is I only want to travel if there's space for serendipity. I only want to go places if I can change my mind according to the opportunities that present themselves or the people I might meet or the lines of a story that might evolve. I find it almost asphyxiating for my trip to be predetermined before I've had any impact on it myself in my own responses or connections that I make. And I feel, in a way, to circle back to something we discussed earlier in the conversation Mm. is that serendipity has almost been engineered out of our travel experiences because the commerce of tourism has got 
in the way of the serendipity of travel, if that makes sense. Every minute is scheduled in order for people to feel they're getting their bang for their buck. The older I get, and especially in the here and now, the more I want to make space for the unknown. And I think that's one of the great pleasures in reading your book is you can see how that serendipity has shaped the the narrative of it. It's not just a, I want to go from A to B and achieve this story. It's about all those tangential moments, I suppose, and, and the wild goose chase of trying to find this piano that you're looking for. Actually, it reminds me of one of the stories that I really loved and I think might be really interesting to listeners who love travel is that tale of the princess. Uh, Maria. Yeah, could you please tell that story for well, us? We love Maria because she She's good for um, she's good for our gender. Um, Maria <laughs> Maria Volkonsky was a princess. She was the wife of somebody called Sergei Volkonsky, who was one of the Decembrists. They were revolutionaries of the 1820s, and they were trying to change government and depose the despotic Tsar. And they weren't successful. So about a hundred of them were banished to Siberia. And with them went some of their wives. If a wife went, she was abandoning all her possessions, all her family, and would never be able to return to European Russia. And Maria Volkonsky did exactly that. She abandoned her infant son in order to follow her husband to the mines of Siberia, where he was banished to hard labor. And she took with her a piano, a clavichord that was strapped to the back of a sledge. And there are wonderful descriptions. There's a fantastic book by somebody called Christine Sutherland called The Princess of Siberia, which tells that whole story very, very beautifully. I touch on it in one chapter of the book. Ah, yes, the image of the princess flying across the ice with the piano in tow with all of her furs. Could you maybe bring that description to life for us? Yes, so if you imagine the best time to travel in Siberia is in winter because it's frozen, so you get a smoother run. You try and travel in spring or summer and it turns to mud. But in winter, when you've got a frozen surface, and it's incredibly pristine. So imagine that Lake Baikal, this otherworldly blue, these sort of cracks in the ice that go meter deep. And she is riding across that with, a they call it a tarantas, and a sledge. She's in the back covered in layers and layers and layers of fur with the piano strapped to all her possessions with the horsemen in front you know the bells jingling it's kind of extraordinary and I think she made that crossing in three hours which is amazing it took me about four using modern means and you know she was going into the unknown she was going into the unknown and this is a time when the remote communities of Siberia weren't fully integrated with the motherland they wouldn't have seen anything like this sort of the idea of a princess in her furs galloping across the frozen lake I think her journey was about three thousand miles kind of extraordinary wow it just sounds like something straight out of a fairy tale but it is really moving because what maria achieved in prison and she was a real fighter she got everyone from prison governors to locals wrapped around her finger until she was teaching you know the prisoners managed to start up a whole academy for the arts in prison and she had a huge effect on culture in Siberia in the area where she ended up living out almost the rest of her life in Irkutsk and she arranged for a concert hall to be built etc etc so she was a real powerhouse and a very inspirational woman a very strong woman Pushkin the poet was hugely in love with her very interesting character oh really was he yeah yeah he called her La Fille de Ganges she had very beautiful olive coloured skin which was unusual fell in love with her on holiday in Crimea well what a woman no wonder Pushkin fell head over heels in love with her 
Now, we're well and truly on the topic of Siberia, and I was wondering if you could paint a picture of this beguiling part of the world for us. So to paint a picture of Siberia, it is, it's a huge area. It covers about a tenth of the world's land mass. And the Siberia I'm talking about is more of a word than a place almost. Its geographical boundaries have changed hugely according to different political periods. But I've taken it to mean, in my book, from the Ural Mountains, which are a string of mountains that run from top to bottom through Russia, and from the Ural Mountains all the way to the Pacific. The reason I've used that full geography is because of something that the playwright Anton Chekhov said, which was that Siberia begins in Ekaterinburg, which is a city in, in the Urals, and ends, and he used this phrase, goodness knows where. <laughs> and that poetic license allowed me to roam really widely and freely from the Arctic, which is tundra, frozen ground, permafrost, although, as we know, with climate change, not so perma anymore. And then you have tiger, which is T-A-I-G-A, also the favoured habitat for the Siberian tiger the animal Mm -hmm. and that is forest and that's across the whole kind of middle belt huge huge silver birch forest and I find it a very beautiful landscape and then beneath that you have the line of steppe country which is what melds into Mongolia the great steppe lands so you've imagined those three bands that's what makes up the kind of the topography if you like of of Siberia but then also you have these right out on the eastern edge and what in modern day is called the Russian Russian Far East. So modern Russians living in the Russian Far East would not say they live in in Siberia. But like I say, I've gone with the kind of more romantic Mm -hmm. Chekhov description. But you then have some fantastic islands out in the Pacific, which I also explore in the book. The Commanders, which are part of the archipelago that spin into the Aleutians, and that's where you can wave at America, up in the north of the Pacific. And then further down, coming off the toe of Kamchatka are the Kuril Islands which I found very exciting. The Kuril Islands are between the toe of Kamchatka and the north of Japan, and one island just might be, you know, the perfect volcano like Mount Fuji. Mm. The next one might be covered in bamboo forest. The next one, something very different again. They call that the Fog Archipelago because it was such a dangerous bit of water for mariners, but incredibly rich bird and sea life. I mean, like a lost world almost. There was one moment, actually, I should describe. When I was going through the Kurils, I was on a research vessel going down with a bunch of bird watchers. It's quite a fun chapter in the book. But there was one place where we were, um, and it was a place called Yankicha, and we came into a sort of, it was like a sunken caldera. So if you can imagine a volcano, that one side of it's collapsed to create a narrow opening that we entered in the falling light of a sort of misty day on a rubber powerboat. And we glide in, turn off the engine and just wait over the next half hour, hour, just tens of thousands of auklets start flooding in to nest inside a flooded caldera, just tens of thousands. The whole sky turns black with birds and they're like skimming the surface of the water. It's all in this misty light. It was absolutely magical and it felt like a kind of lost world. And it's those sort of encounters that I just kept on having in Siberia that filled me with a different sense of optimism about the place. Um, You know, I saw early on in the book, there's a moment where I encounter a Siberian tiger in the wild. Wow. And that was extraordinary. There's only 500 of these creatures left in the wild. Professional conservationists, they're lucky to see one maybe once or twice in a lifetime. 
I'm on my third day and we're driving on a track through the tiger, the forest tiger. And there are these paw prints in the snow. And then we turn a corner and there's a tiger lying in the snow. I mean, kind of amazing. That just fills you with a different kind of joy and a different kind of spirit, I suppose. A very, very powerful place. A very, very powerful place. Oh, how magical. And say that there are a few readers of the book or listeners of this podcast that feel an inexplicable pull to see Siberia for themselves. Where would you direct a first-timer to Siberia? Like, what should they see and do? I would do the Trans-Siberian, you know, don't shy away from the classic because the classic is wonderful. So take that train. It goes right across Siberia. You pick it up in Petersburg or Moscow, I think, and you can... I was jumping on and off and spending days and going back on my... I never... I don't think I ever did the whole route through, now I think of it, but I did lots of it back and forth, back and forth. But you can break up the journey. The most important thing is to be able to have conversation. So if I was to spend my money on anything as a first-time traveller, it wouldn't be on somebody to fix hotels. You know, the hotels are much of a muchness and not very good. Mm. What I would have is pay for an interpreter who can help you have those conversations and enjoy those serendipitous opportunities more than anything. So arm yourself with an interpreter and a train ticket and then just move and find the places that resonate. And I personally preferred Siberia in winter. Mm -hmm. I much preferred it. One, because I had a bad allergic reaction to mosquito bites that are fierce if you in the wrong place at the wrong time mm-hmm. which are released in the summer melt but also the romance of snow you know it mm. creates it was sort of pristine kind of this was the world before we messed it up kind of feeling and I I like that and as somebody told me very early on in my whole endeavor she was a member of a very old religious community called the old believers and I said oh god Siberia is so tough and she goes oh get over it Siberia is a wardrobe <laughs> problem too hot in summer too cold in winter dress properly and I felt like I was being told off by my grandmother but she was right it's just dress (laughs) properly and then the climate's not a problem (laughs) (laughs) that's some really great advice and you know I saw the film Dr Zhivago when I was a child and ever since then I've dreamed of traveling on the Trans-Siberian so hopefully it won't be too long before I have a chance to do that and I'm sure a lot of the listeners at home are probably feeling the same way after hearing your descriptions of Siberia Now, it's intriguing that you wrote this book about the pianos in Siberia, because I know that you're not a pianist yourself, but you're deeply moved by music. Is that right? Yeah, no, I don't play the piano. I don't speak Russian Mm -hmm. and I haven't ever studied history. But I do believe that one can appreciate all those things without having to be an academic. And that was kind of an important part of my ethic, if you like, behind writing this book that was, I was trying to break out of just the travelogue genre. You know, Mm -hmm. I started in A and I finished in Z. I was really using the piano as a means to explore the history and culture through a different lens. Um, you know, how something that looks like a broken box of strings actually can carry enormous connection and solace and humanity and history and love lost and people remembered and all of those things. So, it, you know, pianos are repositories of much more than just music. And that's what I was interested in. And that lens depoliticized it in many ways so that I could find the human contact between a British author mm. and a Siberian on the ground. Mm, And that intersection between travel, human connection, history, literature and music is such a perfect fit for this podcast. Unfortunately, although I feel like I could talk to you for hours, we're going to have to wrap up soon. 
But before we go, where are you dreaming of escaping to next? Where am I dreaming of escaping to next? I'm dreaming of returning to places I love. So I really, really need to get back to Nepal and Mongolia. But the places that I'm beginning to get excited about for a new book project are really in the Northern Hemisphere. And I'm really very interested by the Atlantic Rim and some of the territory and stories that may may come out of that. So we'll see. Mm, And a lot of the places that you've described during this conversation, they seem to make you really feel something at the very core. Travel is is a pulse for me, and if it doesn't spark a pulse, why bother? I live in a really beautiful place where I'm happy, and my restlessness is driven more by a sense of inquiry than a sense of frustration. Yeah, there's a kind of an adrenaline hunter in there too, of course, but ultimately I have friends who say, what are you running away from? You know, they're not travellers. Dear friends, friends I love, Mm. and you know, they'll catch me over dinner or a drink and say, what is it you're running away from? You know, what messed up childhood is there? (laughs) And it's like, I'm not. I'm running towards something. It's it's a different thing. That's such a great attitude. And I know that you were actually running towards or planning a trip to Socotra. What is it about that island that has uh, ignited your curiosity? Socotra? I, I don't I hadn't read an authoritative story on what was there I was interested by you know geopolitically it's really interesting where it sits between Yemen and the Gulf countries there is a lot of very important biological diversity that needs reporting on and I didn't know what I'd find but I know that if I were to go I'd find something that you don't get anywhere else I've heard it described as the Galapagos of the Indian Ocean just because of the incredible wildlife. And there's those um, endangered Socotra dragon blood trees with the... Yeah, mutt nuts oh, looking at Oh, my gosh. They look incredible. Yeah. They've got those thick knotted branches that sort of sprawl out. And then apparently the sap inside is blood red. And they have one version of a local legend surrounding the origin is that it grew from the the blood of a dragon that was injured in a fight with an elephant. Oh, I mean, there you go. There you go. That's enough reason to go. That's fantastic. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And, you know, actually, that's a really good point to make because the idea of pianos in Siberia is about putting two things together that you don't expect. Yes. A dragon and an elephant and a tree. I mean, you know, that's a really good example in Scotland. That makes me want to go now. I've got my reason. Yes. <laughs> and in keeping with the motif that's been running through this episode, the childhood books that have inspired your travels, I think we may have just found your real-life magic faraway tree. <laughs> So, Sophie, it's been a delight having you on The Escape Artist today. Thank you for sharing your very remote and romantic travel tales with us. Well, thanks, Edwina. It's been a real pleasure. Much enjoyed talking with you. That was the wandering wordsmith Sophie Roberts. I must say that I felt a kindred spirit in Sophie, and her brilliant new book was filled with some of the most enchanting storytelling I've encountered this year. If you're curious to know whether or not Sophie finds the piano that she's been searching for, all will be revealed in the pages of The Lost Pianos of Siberia. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review so that others can discover this podcast as well. Of course, I'd love to hear from you and if you're looking for some more travel inspiration you can find me on instagram at escape artist podcast join me next week for the final episode of the escape artist season one